Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 321 and my full and updated conversation, more on that in a minute, with the lecturer of music and coordinator of percussion studies at Queensland Conservatorium, Griffith University, in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, Rebecca Lloyd-Jones. We'll get to Rebecca in a bit. But first up, an action-packed few weeks with Marching Mizzou. It's possible that you noticed that there was no new episode last week during Thanksgiving. If you follow me on my personal social media, you'll know the reason for this. Last week was not only Thanksgiving, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't put out a new episode, but it was also the first time that Marching Mizzou performed in the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. It was many years, and officially a year and a half, in the making, and it ended up being a really good trip and experience, but done in a very tight window where... There was a home football game Saturday night, November 19th. Then we left town on Sunday, the 20th, taking three flights to New York City, all of which were delayed various lengths of time, and not getting into the hotel until almost midnight on Sunday. Then, on Monday, we had a full day of activities in New York City, which included a dinner cruise and going to the top of the rock. Then we had two mornings and afternoons of rehearsals, a Today Show appearance on Wednesday, took in a couple of Broadway shows, some large dinners, and then the 1.15 a.m. wake-up call to get ready for that famous parade. Once that was done and we got something to eat, then we were back on multiple buses to multiple airports, LaGuardia, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, Washington International, for four separate flights to get all of us back to Columbia, Missouri at either midnight or 2.30 a.m. Thursday or Friday. Thursday or Friday. And then we were back at it for an 11 a.m. call before our 2.30 football game against Arkansas on Friday afternoon, which we won, which means we're bowl bound. And then, and then, and then we took Saturday off, which we all desperately needed. I'll have more to say about that in the rave this week. So let's move on and get to this week's guest, Rebecca Lloyd-Jones. Rebecca is currently teaching at Queensland Conservatory in Brisbane, Australia. She's been involved in solo, ensemble, and chamber percussion performance for many years, including her time serving with the Navy Band of Australia. She is also currently finishing up her doctorate at UC San Diego, studying with Steve Schick. I sought out Rebecca after seeing that she was performing at PASIC earlier in November, and we chatted for a normal-length interview in October. So we did the interview then, and at that point, she chatted up the piece she was originally supposed to perform at PASIC 2022, Unsuk Chin's Allegro Manon Tropo. That was part of the preview episodes for this year's PASIC, and that part of the interview is still there and available on episode 318. However, unbeknownst to me, Rebecca needed to change her program for what she was playing at PASIC due to the challenges of bringing the items she needed for that performance overseas. She made the change officially soon after we talked, and when the lights went up on PASIC 2022, she led off Thursday's performance with Natasha Anderson's Snakes Are Loose. It was a very impressive performance overall, and both very unusual and very memorable. So, as regards this particular episode, 
I got back in touch with Rebecca, and we did a follow-up interview to talk about the actual PASIC performance she had just done. So the first portion of the interview is our more recent conversation, and then it concludes with most of what we discussed the first time around. And it was a blast, but let's get to it. We recorded these interviews over Zoom on October 19th and November 15th, 2022, and it begins right now. So Rebecca, what I, I'm having you back on uh, as part of kind of the full episode because there was some changes that happened after we recorded or around the time that we recorded the first interview. So tell me what ended up happening for your PASIC performance. I was originally meant to do the Utsuk Chin um, solo and I put in for that, you know, like before I really understood how PASIC functioned as a new music day. Yeah, you know, I, I played in these, you know, 2009 and it was really, really simple pieces. And then I put in for this piece. It's a really wonderful piece, but it's really logistically complicated because you've got the click track, you've got four channel speakers, you've got multiple instrument stations and amplification. And um, it sort of started to dawn on me as it's like maybe a month or two out. Okay, how much sound check time do I have <laughs> for for the new music day? And although they were super accommodating and really wanted to make it, you know, whatever it could be, you know, 30 minutes to make that kind of piece or, you know, one hour to make that piece kind of work is not it's really not going to happen. And so for me, I thought, okay, this is this is actually getting quite stressful. How about we do a different piece? <laughs> That's quite simple. And they were super accommodating with being like, yep, you know what, that works great. We like that piece. Let's. It's still within the theme of what we're working in and there's, you know, five minutes set up time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, that ended, uh, that's what happened. And I played a piece by Australian composer Natasha Anderson called The Snakes Are Loose, which I've played before. And it's for fixed media and um, glass bottles. So it's um, just an electronic uh, backing track that she has made that you play along with. And I just played with a patch that gave me the time cues. Um, but it's, yeah, really also a really, really interesting piece. What did that piece then entail to, aside from the backing track and what, what other, do you have to, did you, did you drink the wine and, you know, to get, get them available? <laughs> I mean, I hope you did, frankly. <laughs> um, I wasn't able to drink as much wine <laughs> to get as many bottles. <laughs> that piece, um, what does that entail? It, Entails a completely different type of stamina to play to what the chin would have required me to do. Probably maybe 10 or um, 12 bottles on the table. And I'm doing a lot of normal techniques, like playing on top of them, really fast passages. But then also I'm doing uh, mandolin, uh, mandolin rolls, which yeah. is sort of a, and for a very long time <laughs> sometimes. And so that's a really different um sort of stamina that you need to be able to hold that for, you know, 10 or, you know, 12 minutes, which is sometimes how long that that whole phrase was going for. The the electronics, they, they run themselves. You know, uh, Natasha made this really fantastic track, which is based on the pictures of the bottles. So she's very specific with which bottles to use. They're not random at all. She goes into probably a very kind of obsessive amount of detail to find the same kind of um, bottle because that pitch is being played and it's being transformed through those electronics. So they're meant to... Um, 
they're meant to join and overlap and weave within each other, the, the acoustic sound and then the electronic sound, which is why, you know, it was slightly amplified um, on the day. But, you know, the room that I was playing in was really, really live, which was kind of interesting <laughs> for a conference hall. Um, I'm not sure if it was this kind of rectangular, semi-high ceiling kind of situation, but when I would play these bottles, it became so shrill and it was kind of bouncing off all ends of the, the walls. And then at the same time, I would then play these really, really soft passages that you could sort of barely hear. So the amplification was kind of tricky to balance with the acoustic sound in that particular space. So there was probably a few moments where it was borderline, I'm going to say like penetrating pier piercing kind of, not like oh, you know, kill me. But um, there was then probably a few moments where it was like, oh, this is this is on the edge. Um, but I guess that's just the nature of, you know, the new music day. It's like we have this many people and there's four people in a session and you just do it and you get off and, then, you know. So I think you just you just take as a performer, you just you say, okay, this is happening and I will I will go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I told I told you after wherever I was sitting was it felt like you had a mic on those bottles. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, and I, so I thought a couple things. One was your mandolin technique was incredible. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, Dude, okay, that's that's out of my range of, of performing because it was really solid. And, and like you said, you have you have some of these roles that are probably like 15 seconds or 20. I mean, super long, loud, um, consistent you have to like a really consistent mandolin sound yeah. so it was really physically impressive to see it but you're right like there are a few of them where it was like oh wow that is <laughs> and i was hoping your ears were going to hold up because since you're right and, there yeah and that's the weird thing to be able to have that you know so i might be playing 15 seconds and then two second break 15 seconds and then that goes for 10 minutes that yeah. little section goes for like 10 minutes to be able to play you know, double forte, which is what she's asking. Um, you can't really play any less. That's the tricky thing. <laughs> you know, I had a very quick sound check and they were like, those are a little loud. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, I don't know that I can just do this really, you know, um, <laughs> pianissimo for you. Sure. This is such a sort of intense moment. And that's where I think, you know, if you're in a black box kind of theater with time, you have that. When I when I did the the American premiere of this piece, you know, I did have that time to really um, join all those things uh, together. But yeah, I do understand that it did get a bit much. Um, so I think you know, fingers in the ears for that moment is <laughs> is fine. There's also a couple of other passages that are really fast. You know, there was. There's one passage which is where she sort of gives you free reign to play really, really fast, repetitive passages on the bottles that are mounted on the table, um, which seems very straightforward, but um, it, the stamina to kick in to play, to improvise for that long, replicating the track is actually, you know, coming out of the mandolin and going back into the mandolin, it's actually quite a physically demanding kind of task to do, which I think is really interesting about this piece because you see these bottles and you think, oh, yeah, you know, this is Home Depot or something, you know, like, you're like, oh, okay, interesting. Um, but then the techniques that she's asking you to do to combine with the track are actually the same techniques that you need to play Zanarkis, you know, as as well as you can. So I, I that's one of the things that I love about the sort of 
uh, the technique and the virtuosity required in this kind of piece. It really sort of starts to unpack how we think about percussion as, as a technician, which is, you know, interesting to me. How so in that percussion as a technician? What ways do you think about it? Oh, I think about that a lot. I like to think about our canon a lot in what we value, the pieces that we value and why we value them. And the performance practice that's been developed around pieces that we value, Um, especially in a new music day context, we could put it into that context as opposed to a broader basic context. Or we we could definitely interrogate that as well. And I, I personally think that there are certain uh, markers or, you know, monikers that have been developed of what is a successful piece or a performance. And that, that trickles down into our university system, into us, our broader community. And sometimes it's hard to penetrate that to say that, oh, this piece is just as interesting and has as much value as this other piece that we champion a lot. So I think that um, it's, you know, often because I do play a lot of experimental music, um, people think, oh, well, you can't play this other thing or that's, you know, you do that because you can't do that. Um, Maybe I'm projecting at this moment, I don't know. (laughs) But you do get that comment a lot. And I think pieces like this that that I played at PASIC, it shows that that's not the case at all. It's just that um, it's very different, but it it should have as much um, interest in our community as other pieces. That's just my personal kind of take on how I how I think about moving forward in percussion, which I think is a really, you know, poignant part of that new music research day. Because I've I've talked about this with other people where I've, one way to think about this, I think in the more new music case and, and then the more experimental works that you say that you do, is that if you're playing a piece that's like Rebonds or Bone Alphabet or something, there's very much a time, there can be a place where someone will go, well, why don't you just play those pieces? I could see some of the pushback coming from there of just, well, if it's like it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is a this is a sticky topic, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great topic, but it's sticky. You know, you see a lot of, um, let's take competitions, just as a really bad example. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> Um if you want to get into a program in Europe that's competition-based or adjudication-based, there's going to be those same 10 pieces on that every time. So then these pieces like Rabon or um, not Bone Alphabet, <laughs> but definitely something like Snarkis, they start to have this life beyond what the piece actually is. This mm-hmm. kind of mythical thing happens with these pieces, which I think is really um, fascinating and also really problematic in, in a couple of different ways because this is just a piece and it is wonderful in its own right, but it's no more wonderful, you know, than other things. And I, I've had conversations with with people being like, oh, Rabond is the, the, the most uh, the best piece that we have in our repertoire, the hardest and the most this. And I'm like, well, this is just the most outrageous comment I've ever heard. Like comparing these things, like I personally don't subscribe to this kind of aesthetic of comparing these these things. Um, so that that's kind of my take on repertoire. I love Ramon and I, I, I've played it before and I love my students when they play it. And, you know, I, I play a lot of other Zanarchist pieces because I think that they're really interesting. So it's more like... 
more like being honest with yourself as an educator or as a member of our community. Okay, why am I valuing that and why am I championing that? Is it for the right reasons? Because I really love this piece. Is it because um, I want to prove to everyone that I'm I'm at this standard, which I think happens a lot. I see that a lot. And that's a little bit worrying, you know, that 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 brings me <laughs> anxiety. What I'm trying to say is just like, how do we approach pieces and why? How do we approach our instruments and why? And what that does for us moving moving forward is 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 I guess what we're what I'm trying to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point, particularly about the problems of of making those comparisons because it's not fair to the composer and the performer to have to sit there and think, well, this piece is not as good as this. Uh, why am I playing this or what? It's like, no, you just, if you could just take that piece on its merits and just yeah. say, this is, this is its own thing. And, and, you know, I, one of the ways that I was thinking about what you said, particularly about the competition thing is sometimes what happens, I, I don't know if you've thought about this in a, in, in, in this scheme, but I always think about how there's a lot of times where there'll be like a concerto competition. If the percussionist has to go up against Rachmaninoff three or the Tchaikovsky violin concerto. And you're like, you already know that you're, you're, you're in the hole basically. Right. Yeah. I've, I've seen this, you know, we have, we do have certain competitions at at my university where I teach and Mm -hmm. um, it'll be, there was one recently where it's um, you nominate, one student from your area and they compete against each other for money. And, you know, that's great because students want money. (laughs) We all need money. And it's also in some ways a great opportunity to go through preparing something and presenting it in a different way to a recital. Uh, I'm not saying preparing for a competition is what I would usually advocate for, but I think all the experiences as an undergraduate are really important. You know, like um, sometimes succeeding gives you confidence sometimes failing makes you build stronger so you know that is a process but it is really difficult when you're on a panel um and your student might play really fabulous a really hard marimba solo but and then someone comes and plays you know Vivaldi string something and how can you compete you know in that particular setting where western art music in its more conservative form is valued higher than us as a practice. And then that makes me think, well, maybe percussion isn't meant to belong in this sphere. You know, maybe we don't have to replicate these things. Yes, we can have our things as we do, but we we don't have to be that. We don't have to be a violin concerto soloist. We don't have to replicate this sort of orchestral model. It can exist in multiform ways, which maybe other instruments do, Maybe they code switch in better ways. I don't know if percussion does. But, yeah, I, I do think about this with my students and, you know, they consume a lot of the internet these days. <laughs> I'm not sure if your students do. Um, and they see things and they're like, oh, I want to be like that performer or I want to be, like, famous like that. And you're like, oh, okay, well, let's interrogate why you you think that that's of, of value. So it's complicated, definitely complicated. Well, and the... I, I, you know, some of the, I wonder if you see this too, where some of the challenges on, on the literature side can be because they're, because your students are on the internet and every, nearly every piece that, that we may ask them to play has a performance, that there's a lot of times where the concern is going to be, are you, like, if they do something musically, 
Is it because they have made a decision that that's what works musically or have they watched the same clip 10 times and they've decided I'm going to replicate that clip? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I've, we're, we're getting into another, <laughs> another yeah. topic, but I really, I really try to encourage my students to, when they pick a piece to play, you know, you explore repertoire, you might have a listen to a couple of things, but um, you know, you really have to first go with the text that's in front of you. You know, this is a text, you know, treat it like you would, like you're reading a novella or something, you know, like I'm going to take in all of this. I'm going to really, really find out what this composer is wanting me to do. Like they're telling me this, so I'm going to try that. Then you, then you go to yourself. Okay. Can I actually do that? How does that work? How does that flow? And, you know, I get my students to analyze their pieces all the time. Once they're sort of performing them more, you know, like actually getting them, you know, up to almost performance standard, you know, what is the energy flow of this piece? What are the, you know, micromanage this piece for me just as an exercise of, of, you know, analytics so that we can understand what you actually want me to know. Like, what do you want me to know as a listener? So that kind of process I go through in that later stage with the students um, in the in preparing. And I'm thinking about recitals right now, <laughs> my students having their recitals. So these kinds of thoughts are, are, are on my mind. And only when they sort of have an issue or, or or start to interrogate it properly that I say, yeah, go and listen to a couple of different versions, like cross-check yourself, but don't yeah. let that be the fundamental for how you decide to play this piece because it's it's about you as an individual with your pathway with making music. I feel like that's, that can be challenging, again, with the access to all the stuff where I, I could see that being really challenging, partially because you can fall down that rabbit hole of deciding to do all that stuff and I, I've I've had to a couple of times when I, when I've learned I don't know if you had this experience where mm-hmm. where you can go down that rabbit hole and then I have to remember and then I have to like shut it off and be like okay maybe in like three months I'll <laughs> listen to something <laughs> yeah. just so I know I'm in I, I'm in yeah. the ballpark. Yeah, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I don't know what this this means. Okay, no, 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 I'm on track. I'm on track. You know, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but if you're playing a piece for the first time, you're the first person you know, communicating that text, then that's tricky. So that kind of um, developing that that concept of independence with understanding a text and understanding how to transfer it is really, is really important, which I think I value more now, now that I play more pieces perhaps for the first time or discovering them in, the, in, their, in their own way. Yeah, you develop that and that, cross, that crosses over into, you know, more repertoire that is, is, is more known. Anything else about the piece that you did at PASIC that I hadn't asked you about or you found particularly interesting, challenging? I really like this piece because it's a little bit quirky. Mm-hmm. I I enjoy the quirks of this, this piece. For me, I find it really lyrical. There is something... Um, about the tuning of the bottles and the specific types of phrases that she asks you to develop that feel very counterpoint to me. <laughs> you know, maybe okay. I'm crazy. <laughs> um, but I, I really enjoy the way that it, it brings melody in a different way that we might used to be thinking about melody, um, which is why I think when you're communicating with objects, like when you're having an object and you're making them, you know, part of um part of the piece part of the melody part of the the information 
um, it's it yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I really love the way that she did that in the piece. Um, I really love the way that she explored the timbres of the bottles and sort of extremes that they could get um, with different objects. So comb, I had combs, I had brushes, I had knives, um, I had sort of like a tooth, a toothpick. So all these different sort of uh, gritty kind of sounds that would be coming out. I think the piece is, is long and I think sometimes that can be difficult as a listener you know, when you feel like something is going on, but longer than perhaps you want it to go. But I also have started to think about this recently in like sitting, not sitting in the trouble, but sitting in that space that you're trying to create. Um, I, I've really started to think about that more and what that does. Like when you when you have a passage that say it's going for 15 minutes and maybe you wanted it to go for 10 <laughs> or something. I don't know. Um, that's just as an example. Um, what happens when you do really sort of just succumb to admitting that you're going to be in it for that 15 minutes? How does it change? How does the sound then, does it become like you don't want it to end? You know, like, like I'm, I'm, I've sort of been starting to, to, to sit into those things more as opposed to being impatient and wanting them to move on quicker. Like I think maybe when I was younger, if I'm playing something and I think, oh, well, this passage is done and I just I just probably move on to the next thing, maybe the audience is bored, you know, you're overthinking all this stuff. I, I've, I've really started more to think about, okay, I'm just going to sit in this space. I'm going to sit in this sound and I'm just going to let it happen. Um, so I think that's something that that happens in in Natasha's piece as well, which it's not expected because at moments it's very fast and it's very shrill and it's very um, maybe sounding like it's coming from outer space in you know in some ways. So I think it has all these different concepts of virtuosity that we work through in more traditional pieces, but they're sort of presented and packed into um, a really different sonic framework that you're 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 getting. I love that point. And I love thinking about how you're almost having to pull your yourself out of the performance experience to get that feeling of, you know, sitting outside yourself or. Yeah. 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 I did a premiere recently in Australia of, of Sarah Henney's, um, and a piece that goes for one hour. And <clears throat> it was a really, um, interesting performance. It was slightly polarizing for listeners, you know, and sure. I had to really reflect on that as a process. You know, I did everything I could and I was so into it and, you know, um, and it was, it was sort of an endurance and almost like an athleticism for me to be able to play this piece mentally and physically. And so to receive comments, not about you, but about a piece and how um, it made them feel was was really wonderful. And some of those reactions weren't always like, oh, I loved it. Right. And I really had to sit in, what does that mean? And maybe that's great. You know, it's it's complicated to hear, but maybe it's really okay. Like some people were like, I really loved that, but I don't need to hear that again. And other people were like, look, I'm just totally in. I'm all in. You know what I mean? Um, so it was really, it's really interesting developing how you how you respond to that. And and you know, giving that respect to the listener to 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 connect. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this concept a lot, and it sort of started to reflect in in preparing Natasha's piece for for Pasic, um as well. But you know, if I had played the chin, it would have been the same. There's many silence or 
spaces to fill that as a performer you might be freaking out inside like is this okay is people enjoying this is this boring but <laughs> you know you just you just drop that thing you know <laughs> oh right. you, you place that note um so yeah I think uh all of these things in a piece that might seem very simple like these bottles and this fixed media track and it sounds like you know for a lot of the time it actually has all these complexities and rich layers of texture and interpretation that um are just really interesting to me unfortunately i'm 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 not going to lie i do find my i do find myself in the in the former category of that was great i i don't need to hear it again <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay you know everyone yeah. has that opinion um yeah. uh, not everyone has that opinion about this piece but you know i think that's great because sometimes i hear things and i'm like I don't need to hear that again. That was, I'm glad that I understand that and that gave me something. But it's also, you know, it, it's like a book, right? Maybe you read a book and you're like, I don't need to read that again. Or maybe you see a film and you're like, I can really appreciate that, but I don't need to see that again. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really understanding what a text is for what it is, like really interrogating what we're actually doing here, you know. I would assume that if you're studying with Steve Schick, you're probably, there's probably a lot of, comfort levels being broken because he's because of how you know of his own style of playing <laughs> i would assume that that's just you like you know going in like okay we're gonna we're gonna do some stuff you know, like. <laughs> well you know i think steve is such a fantastic individual you know just that goes without saying but he's also a really amazing mentor one of the things that i love about steve in the like five year relationship I've had with him now is that he knows when to push and he knows when to leave you and he he really does care when he's giving you his time for a performance and it goes without being said that he does expect a very high standard and he upholds a very high standard and I think him just upholding a very high standard makes you always want to be better you know he he's he never says like be better or anything that's not what that that's not his vibe but just simply you know his presence it makes you strive to to be the best and to to Leave no stone unturned. You know, every single part of the piece is important and every single action that you do is is absolutely vital. And so I've really taken that ethos from, from him. Um, and I think I've learned that, you know, some certain pieces take different preparation styles. Certain pieces um, sit easier, sit quicker, different things. And with this piece, some things sat really easy and then some things just didn't. Some things I kind of had to memorise to do. Also, Unsuction uses um, five tuplets a lot, which is a kind of an obscure thing to, to say, but sometimes five tuplets can be very confusing when you're playing them in a lot of different ways. And so that took a while to sit, <laughs> which is a very specific but obscure comment. But um, so I think um, my approach is just giving myself enough time. You know, I, I had like a three or four month period in, for my initial performance to, to prepare this and playing for people, playing for people a lot was, is something that I find helps me. I love the comment that you said about how well, I, you're going to have to restate it, but it kind of like the intentionality where, um, mm. you know, where, and I kind of, I see that. I understand that it's kind of, I think of it as, um, and maybe he's brought things up like this, where like an actor, if they're doing comedy, they have to, they have to treat everything very seriously for it to work. Cause if they think mm. it's a joke, then it's, it's not going to come across. So it's similar to like, even if I'm doing something that seems a little bit odd or silly, like if I take it very seriously, 
and and I'm really there, then the people that are watching are going to be there with me because I'm doing that. Uh, yeah, you, you're, you're taking them with you. And, you know, you might seem relaxed or you might seem, you know, perplexed in a moment of the piece. That's maybe that's the intention. But But every single part of the piece is absolutely based in care. It's absolutely every single thing matters. And, I, you know, I try to say that to my students. You know, you can tell when you're teaching a student and they might throw a couple of phrases away, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, well, I can tell, you know. And I always, I always want to be as transparent as a performer as possible. Like, in the end, I'm trying to communicate and I'm trying to give an experience and I'm trying to make someone feel something. And I really care about this, so I want you to care about it for that 15 minutes that I'm going to have your attention. And I appreciate the... um the role of the listener, you know, when I'm a listener, I'm going to give my all to the person in front of me, regardless of what they're doing, whether it's a marimba solo or a multi or a nothing, you know, whatever, like I, I, I'm i going to be there and I would expect that too. And I'm going to give all of that. And um, so I think that's one of the things I, I've also learned at UC San Diego is just to, to really care and, and put your best, you know, intention forward. Rebecca, tell me what your percussion activities and responsibilities are at this point. Technically, I am called a lecturer and percussion coordinator at the Queensland Conservatorium Griffith University, which um, in American terms is assistant professor, head of department, um, early career researcher, this kind of feeling. So this is one of my responsibilities (laughs) that I have that I've just started. I've just started in this role in July. We have a different academic calendar to America. We start in February and we finish in November and then we have our summer in in the November, December period. So (laughs) we're just, you know, a little bit opposite. But um, so I've, I've just started in July and my responsibilities here are running the studio. I do other things in my lecturer capacity, you know, teaching other forms of music and, and working with other um, parts of the university. But um, I I teach the undergraduate program. I run percussion ensemble performance classes. Um, and it's something that I am, am really enjoying and loving and learning um, as well. The other um things that I do <laughs> with percussion is I'm in the really late stages of my my doctorate at UC San Diego I um I'm in my fifth year of a six-year program and I was lucky enough to get this job in during my doctorate which I'm so grateful for so I am actually finishing <laughs> my doctorate and I'm kind of never um having summer anymore so I, I finish my academic year in Australia and then I go straight back to America for my summer, I'm an Australian summer uh, in America, and then I come straight back to work. And so I'll do that for a little bit longer to finish uh, my doctorate. So when I'm not teaching and running my studio, I, I'm still practicing and preparing and I'm writing, you know, my dissertation. And, and um, those are kind of my obligations and responsibilities <laughs> at this point. I have more to go. Mainly by choice. You know, I could finish, you know, I'm I'm ABD, what we call ABD, all but um, dissertation. And so I, I could be done, you know, next month if I want to. But the, I, that's, that's not really what I want, <laughs> actually. You know, I've really loved my time at uh, UC San Diego and I... Um, I really immersed myself in it. I was really grateful for the opportunity to be able to go and be in such a robust department with other other people in the doctorate that were playing at such a high standard and thinking about things. And, you know, you see San Diego is also um, one part of it is Steve and Steve Schick and 
I, you know, am forever grateful. But there's so many other really amazing <laughs> minds and people making music. And that has been a huge part of my life um, and growth um, as well. So when I go back in December, I have a I have a dissertation recital, um, which is about Marianne Amache and her early work adjacencies from 1964. And then I have the Unsuk Chin um, Piano Percussion Double Concerto. Um, and I have a couple of other projects. Um, so I'm preparing those now in my, you know, in my Australian time, and then <laughs> I'll head right back in. But then next year, I'm just writing my dissertation. Um, and my dissertation is about three specific composers. It's about Marianne Amache, um, it's about Lucia Douglevsky, and it's about Eleanor Hofter and their early percussion works. And when I say early, I'm talking between the 60s to the 90s. And so part of my dissertation is is actually playing their pieces, which takes archival types of research. It takes sort of primary source, um, you know, exploration, but it also just takes a lot of care to recreate and document. So that's a big part of it alongside the writing process. So I'm not ready to be done enjoying <laughs> and working these things yet. But um, yes, it's the end of the DMA is in sight. That's exciting, obviously. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I got to be honest, I don't know that I've never heard of the three people you've talked about. That's wonderful. So, so how you did do. you come in contact <laughs> with them and what what should we know about the three these three composers? Sure. OK. Um, how long is this podcast? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, right. Yes. This is a live dissertation. Reading from Rebecca. This is my defense right, right now. This is, no, yes, um, we're, we're in the, yes I, I, they're not. You can't see their pictures, but the rest of your committee is here. Uh, is just standing is in the here for your, for your perspective uh, thesis. Um, so when I, I, I don't know if this resonates with other people, but, you know, when I went to, when I moved to America and I went to study, I was um, not young per se for the American system. You know, I, I got there in my very, very late twenties, early thirties, um, <laughs> and which is very normal for um, Australia. In fact, you don't really start to do a doctorate till you're in your mid thirties in Australia. It's not considered to be the same, um, and, you know, the systems are different, so they're not comparable. But, um, you know, I went there with a lot of performance, professional performance experience in orchestra. Um, you know, I'd done a master's of research. I'd worked in a military band. I'd done, you know, I've done so many different things. And I was like, I really know about stuff, <laughs> right? And when I got there, I was like, whoa, the door has just opened to a whole other world I thought I knew and I and I didn't. And I thought instead of... Um, feeling overwhelmed by this experience I'm just gonna run with it <laughs> and very early in my time I was given an assignment by one of my professors to go to the archive at UC San Diego they have an archive of Pauline Oliveros and um, because she was a, a faculty member there for a long time and the assignment was go to the archive and find something that comes to you which might sound a little bit crunchy, but it was actually really wonderful. <laughs> and so I did. I didn't find anything. Well, I found many things about Pauline, but I, I found this really obscure mailing list of people that were in a union to do with women and female composers. And there was a list of names. And at the time I was kind of talking with my teacher, Steve, about, um, oh, no women wrote early pieces. You know, no women wrote pieces around the time of Zyklus and, you know, 64 with Feldman. You know, no one wrote any of these things. And I was like, well, I reckon that's wrong. We just need to find them. You know, we just need to, like, dig a bit deeper. So I found this list of, of, of female composers and I was like, I bet one of these women wrote 
a piece for percussion really early. They have to. Someone did. I know it. I just have to find it. And so I I found Lucia um, and I went on a deep dive into her life and her archive. And she passed in 2000. But during this time in the 60s through to 2000, she lived in New York City. Um, she uh, was with Eric Hawkins, the dance company, and she made her own percussion instruments and she played them as well and that's that's the very abridged version and there's a book only recently that just came out about her because her life lives in the library of congress in the archive she wasn't published during her time so um I just got really obsessed with her and I was just really into her music and to finding out more about her and from then it made me stem to also find this other American composer Eleanor Hofter in the um archive at the uh, in Maryland in Baltimore. And Eleanor wrote some really fabulous pieces, which she also played, although not being a trained percussionist. Um, and with Marianne Amache, who was sort of in the, the Buffalo scene um, and uh, New York upstate scene, she didn't necessarily play, but she did write some early pieces. And so part of my dissertation and working with working with the archive of, of these women is that Percussion has always been a bit of an outlier in ways, and a lot of the women from that period may not have been accepted into the canon, but were still really into making experimental music, and and they made it, and they made it regardless of whether they were accepted in in whatever canon that was. And so I really just got really into that percussion is an accessible um, and a universal thing that we can we can. Um, you know, get into and you don't have to be a trained percussionist. You can break down those hierarchies um, of, of the canon. So that's that's a very small part of, <laughs> of what those women were. They're all amazing individuals in their own right, but I'm just sort of focusing um, a little bit on their, their percussion writing. I, I'm glad you, you phrased it as, you know, percussion has always been an outlier um, in, in so many ways, but then to also, but what you're, what you're saying is, so percussion is an outlier, and then on the outside of the outlier were these, <laughs> were this group of women. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the outliers um, have like protected zones, and you know exactly. And and in a way, maybe the music is um, has the richness and the and the the density that it does because they were outliers. You know, maybe that's part of of the appeal being an outlier of the outlier but then it's also maybe percussion can break down hierarchies and it can um be diverse and it doesn't have to be elite and it doesn't have to be virtuosic it can be different forms of virtuosity um uh different forms of capacity can engage with with percussion which is something that i think is really really special and kind of to your point and, and kind of along the research i'm wondering because it, it sounds like in some ways that maybe this music that they wrote, this early music, because I would have to imagine no expectation for this to like for them to have any kind of living. I always think of like the Charles Ives situation where he's like, well, he or, he had cash so he could write whatever he wanted. And so like I, I always think of it in terms of like, OK, well, if, if like maybe because they probably know that this is not going to be necessarily a bestseller, they could kind of like roll with what it, wherever they're at yeah, without any I, boundaries in some ways. That's true. And I think that, you know, in Lucia's um, case with choosing, you know, it was a choice not to be published, whether mm -hmm. 
Uh, what the factors were around that, you know, you can't say specifically. I mean, you can, there are indications in the archive, but when someone has passed, you know, there's a lot of care that you have to you have to give to retelling their story as, as accurately, as with much fidelity as possible. Um, so there's a lot of factors. Um, with with Lucia's case that she wasn't published and that was a choice and there's only the really big commissions that were you know she was commissioned by the New York Philharmonic she won the Kudovsky Prize you know um, Guggenheim there's there's all these um, archive in the New York Times or these archives in the public libraries about the things that that had happened in Eleanor's case um, she did teach at Yale and Harvard in different ways and she um, had an album come out post her death of a lot of of her things so um, there is that effort there to, to make it happen, but I, I don't. I think that living precariously is is very real, <laughs> and definitely in Marion Amashay's later life, she she did um, live precariously. But um, I think having that freedom is also, yeah, like you were saying, that complexity, the dichotomy of 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 choice of your music and being an outlier. It's all it's all it's all in this big tangled web. <laughs> I'm sure that's part of the fun. You're you're getting in with with all what the research you're doing. Yeah, I look, I I really love my research. Yeah. <laughs> and when I say I love my research, I just really love these pieces and so I feel really passionate about it and so performing them and advocating for them is is a really big um a really big part of what I feel my output and my impact and my empowerment can be as an individual but also as a um a teacher, you know, now. And I think there's uh, you know, as percussionists, there's so many things that we could do or there's so many things that we can be drawn to and maybe expectations we hold ourselves to. And I remember in my very early career, I, I worked professionally in the orchestra and I thought, well, if I'm going to be successful, I have to get a job in the orchestra. And if I get the job, then my life will just be, I've made it, like I've reached yeah, success. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then, you know, I realised that I'm not really stimulated by this. <laughs> maybe this isn't my maybe this isn't actually um, true to me. And so I've been on a really long journey to find things. And and through having the freedom of studying in a program like UC San Diego, not to pin everything on that, but that program through, you know, through being funded, through having supportive, uh, you know, faculty, through having the support networks to learn and focused learning, I feel like has I've really been able to find my aesthetic in, in music that I feel very genuine about. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. It's obviously been a huge influence. Um, your enthusiasm talking about it is very clear. So the, oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Talk about how, how getting the position. Um, what was like, did something, did something happen? Like that was there like a sudden opening and, and it was like, <laughs> Was it a timing thing? Like, how did how did that happen? That you got this job at a, at a time when it sounds like it's it's mid year for you to get it. Yeah. Well, actually, what happened was last year, so twenty twenty one. I had come back for the summer, so the American summer. I'd come back to Australia to see my family after COVID. You know, I was I stayed in America during COVID, and I didn't. I wasn't able to get home, so I came home to be with my family and at that time the head of of percussion she um she moved on to a different position in the university um outside of percussion and so very quickly they were like oh rebecca you're here could you please run the department temporarily for us and i was like oh can i you know i <laughs> have you got the right person anyway um yeah. so i so i stepped up to do a you know a contract a half year contract of, of running the department and i decided at the end of that that i 
I didn't want to stay. I wanted to go back to the United States. Um, um, I could have stayed on on contracts, I suppose, until they advertised the position. But I I felt that I had more to do and I had more to learn and I needed to focus more on myself. And I'm really, really glad and feel very comfortable with that decision. So I went back to America and I've, I've been there. Um, and during that time, they did advertise the position. So I applied and I did the job talk, job interview, you know, this whole process. And I was really fortunate enough to get this position and to start at the beginning of what we say trimester two, our, our second um, part of the year. And um, it's not a tenured position, but it is, you know, contracted and and, and sort of long term. So I'm you know, I went through that whole process. I mean, during that time, I had also been doing interviews in the US. I did one at University of Kentucky. I did one in NAU. So there's a lot of, you know, jobs sort of floating around. And that's still maybe on my horizon, like maybe this isn't my forever place, but I'm really grateful. I'm, I'm, you know, it's like, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak, like I'm really learning hands on. Um, I'm really refining my teaching. I think I was teaching at UC San Diego, but as a, um, you know, 200 non-music majors, undergraduate, lower division history of Western music classes. <laughs> you know, right. like that's a, that's a different kind of, of teaching style that you develop. Yes. And yeah. I have done tertiary teaching, but running a studio and um, that day-to-day of of that that tertiary teaching, I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm having this opportunity to, to do. So in 2021, mm. you did a, like a half year or something like that? Yeah. And then six months and then, then someone, I guess there was someone interim while you were, while they advertised or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. They, I think they had just sort of sessional, you know, sessional people running what they can do. Um, and while they were advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Not knowing anything about the school. So like, tell me like a little bit about how big is the school? How big is the department? Um, what's, what's the place of like, how does the school fit into, the rest of Australia or the rest of, <laughs> you know, the, the prop is it state or province? I don't know in Australia. Remember, um, or neither. We have a very different system. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. So I'll need, uh, I need all yeah. That. If we put it into context, right. When I moved to California, I looked up the population and I think it was 26 million, maybe 24 million people or something. And that's pretty much Oh, in the California? Population. In California, yeah. And oh, no, that's it's kind of much the, higher than that. It's much more? It's more yeah. now? Okay. Yeah. I, so Australia, I think Australia is 27 million people. Okay. Um, that's our population. So obviously you're working in a really smaller field. Mm-hmm. And we don't really live in the middle of the country <laughs> because <laughs> there's a desert, certain people yeah, yeah. do. Um, but generally we live, you know, on the coast. So there's only um, really conservatoriums in the uh main cities, so Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Hobart, Perth. Um, that's that's really where you're going to find the hubs, and that's where the national orchestras are as well, the ones that are sort of publicly funded. Philanthropy is less, um, obviously there is philanthropy, but the way that it exists in the United States, it's very different. We have a lot more public funding. Um, so my, you know, I'm attached to a, a bigger university that offers all the things that university do. Um, and in Australia, it's um, essentially free to study. Uh, we have like a student, you know, um, you put your student loan, but it's nothing like what you have in the United States. And every the barrier to entry is is very minimal. Anyone can really go to do that. So 
as a conservatorium, we are like a standalone building in the middle of the city. <laughs> We're not actually on a university campus. We are just this sort of conservatorium hub in the arts district in Brisbane, which is really, really um, beautiful. And I think off the top of my head, there's close to a thousand students in this building, you know, enrolled in, in different capacities. Um, but in my studio, it, it really fluctuates between, you know, say to eight to 15 undergraduates. And they're not doing other courses. They are 100% of the time a Bachelor of Music percussion student. So their lives, I hope, would be <laughs> practising, um, doing the performance classes, percussion ensemble and large ensembles. They play in the orchestra for the conservatorium. They play in the, the wind orchestra or they play chamber music. They so And they're doing their normal classes, oral theory, history, whatever um, else that they, they do. So um, it's a really all-encompassing um, course. And we have first, second, third, fourth year, so freshman, sophomore, junior, whatever about senior. <laughs> I'm always a little shady uh, with that. And then we have graduate students, which is a different capacity and obviously doctoral students um, as well. So that's kind of the makeup of our, of our institution. So it's, it's all undergrad there? Primarily, there's def I have a graduate student at the moment and there are graduate students, but there's not as big of a focus like in the United States where there is like a graduate music department. We don't have that kind of system. It really is you come to do your four years of undergraduate training, learn those skills, get out there and play. That's kind of more of the culture, I would say, um, uh, as opposed to like everyone will do a master's. Not not many people, I mean, people do have masters, but it's not common that you would study, 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 like like you have that trajectory in the US. It's more about get the skills you need, get out and, and into the world and make and make art or make things or play with people. Got it. Now in Brisbane, mm -hmm. Brisbane, Brisbane? Brisbane. Brisbane, okay. Gotcha. Perfect. <laughs> um, remind me, is that that's on the eastern part of the? Yes. Okay, is it and it's close to Sydney. Well, it's close. Um, it takes close. a couple okay. of days to drive. Close, close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it, it would be our closest, um, um, bigger city. Yes, so probably, uh, you know, an hour flight, but maybe a two-day drive. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> but it's it's. It's northeast of the in the country. Yes. Okay. Yes, northeast. Does Brisbane have like a industry? Like, what's what kind of? Is it just like it's the biggest city in this particular region of the country, kind of thing? Yeah, it's it's the biggest city in this state. <laughs> so we have. So I'm trying to think of a comparison of how it would be. Um, if you would, so Queensland is the state that I live in and Brisbane is the capital. Um, Queensland is very complex because it's very remote, you know, in, in parts, it goes all the way to the top of Australia. It probably begins sort of the bottom of the state is around the center and you go all the way to the top. So you're talking 2000 kilometers kind of thing, you know, north. <laughs> um, and in that time, there's a lot of diverse communities. There's a lot of agriculture. There's a lot of um, rural communities. There's also a lot of Indigenous communities, especially as you go north, that they have, um, you know, uh, particular um, particular people live there or or to do with the Torres Strait, the islander community that we, that we have. So it's a very complex um, state and uh, Brisbane is the metropolitan. It's the, the city per se. 
I would say Brisbane comparatively to other cities, and I can say it because I have lived in them, I have lived in Sydney and Melbourne, is um, maybe a little bit quieter in the art scene, Mm -hmm. possibly um, a little bit on the the more conservative side to, say, Melbourne or Sydney. Um, And that could be to do with the demographics of the state. It could just be to do with the climate. It gets pretty warm you know, around here. <laughs> um, I watched the, has... I watched the, I watched the Australian open. I, I, I've, I've, uh, I, I mean, I, I know that's Melbourne in the, in the, in the South, yeah. but like, I know that it's like, it's been like un, unceasingly hot when, when that tournament goes on in January. Yeah. That's in January. <laughs> yeah. For you, you're probably like, why is it so warm in January? This is very bizarre. No, no, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, But I think that one of the beautiful things about being this up-and-coming city, which I think that Brisbane is, um, I think it has that vibe, is that there's so many pockets to make things happen. Mm. Things don't always happen. When they do, though, they make an impact. So, you know, we have have an orchestra here, a national orchestra that also does the operas and the ballets, and we have musicals, you know, we have our own Broadway that that brings in all those shows. Um, In terms of, like, contemporary and experimental music, it's definitely an underground scene. I think that it has that um, that kind of vibe to it, which has its beauty. Um, uh, but I think that there's so much potential in a, in a city like this. And one of my roles as an educator is, um, which is not uncommon, you know, I, I try to get out to the primary schools, to the high schools, so the elementary school system, to see who's teaching in that system, to find out the students that want to come through, to bring them in, to then move them onto a pathway. And I would love for that pathway for them to stay in Brisbane and to make music and, and do things and take risks and and give to that community and be teachers that, that feed that all in. And that's a really long-term goal of mine, to be able to foster that sort of network of of um of a scene and um i hope i can make an impact with that but um i i, I hope you, you're cultivating among the um the you know the eight-year-olds a love of of own <laughs> alphabet i would I hope that uh, oh gosh well that's not Ernie Howe. There's, there's like oh, there's a lot of Fernie Howe fans in the hair is there <laughs> <laughs> well you know i have a nine-year-old and i can guarantee you she would not really enjoy that <laughs> 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 no matter how well Steve Schick plays it, she just doesn't. She doesn't. She's not yeah, a big fan. she's just. You know, my daughter, bless her, she's been around music, and her father is a musician as well, and so it's really just nonchalant for her. The interest is very minimal, and um, when she said to me recently you know, mom, just because you and dad are musicians doesn't mean I have to be. I've really started to take her seriously. <laughs> wow. And so I was like, okay, yeah, no, I, I know. Yeah, I, I agree. And so now it's all basketball. Now everything is basketball. <laughs> that works too. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Hey, so Rebecca, let's back up. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Queensland. So in the, in the, the state that I am now, but I grew up in a really um, regional part of the country, which I guess you could say is the outback if you <laughs> if you were so inclined. Um, I grew up in a really small town, about two thousand people. Music was not a thing. Um, it was actually a mining t- town, a coal mining town. But my family are not in in coal mining; they're just from that area um, in agriculture more so. Um, and I uh, was probably not in that community, like the most 
normal or mainstream child and I think my parents were always like I don't know what we're going to do with her (laughs) she's a little different (laughs) um but I I found really early on like like music in in piano and singing and I just love to play any kind of instrument so I spent you know a lot of my childhood just immersing myself in doing things with no expectation no one else in my in my family is is a musician so it was only kind of when I got into high school that um, someone was like, hey, you can read music and play piano. How about you jump up the back and we need, you know, you know, that that classic story of the the pianist marimbist, you know. <laughs> and well, so that's and where it really I was gonna say, and it. usually it's usually the the woman who's who's asked <laughs> more often than not. This, you, that is true. That that <laughs> that does happen. But I um I don't know, I just became instantly obsessed with percussion around the age of 15. And I think my family didn't know anything about it and that intrigued me even more like like <laughs> I think with piano they developed okay that piece sounds good or oh that thing's cool and I think my um you know talking about the outlier you know before my my desire just to search for boundaries came in the form of percussion and so I didn't have a teacher you know I just was really into it and so I didn't have any kind of formal or professional teacher until I got into the conservatorium that I'm now teaching you know I'm an alumni of this this institution and I came in at 17 moving into the city like you know the most naive person you've ever met <laughs> and I reflect on that now when I'm teaching some of my first years I'm thinking what was I like you know you know giving the myself my own reality check and so I um yeah, I had a really kind of slow and um, remote and beautiful upbringing. It was very different to a lot of the my colleagues and and um, in the city. But I'm really grateful for for the upbringing that I had. How far or how long did you study piano? I um, studied oh, close to ten years, I would say, probably from around six or seven and I did multiple exams and um I really loved playing piano but I really didn't like the pressure of playing piano to be honest and um my mother bless her heart she's very strict you know you know you got to get up in the morning and do your scales before you go to school and <laughs> you know <laughs> just because um and and you know I did and then I just eventually didn't love it you know, like I just, I, and I think I'm one of those people that if I don't have that love and I don't have that passion, it's hard for me to continue with the thing. Uh, so it's amazing that percussion has sustained me so long <laughs> and I still, I'm still really, really passionate about it. And I, so I really love piano and, uh, you know, the, having gone through so many piano exams, um, you know, to be able to sight read, to be able to problem solve, to be able to understand counterpoint, to be able to know how to practice. Um, I'm really grateful for my early teachers for for giving me those things because I find with my students now that's a lot of things that we're talking about. You know, obviously we talk about technique, but the, the other, you know, how to understand cadences, how to understand how to move, move through phrases, how to practice, how to use your time management. That's a big part of running a studio as well. Yeah. I, and it's, it's interesting with, um, because I, I teach a, a couple sections of oral skills here at, at University of Missouri. And it's interesting when I, when I have percussionists in there, because I, I know that there's a part of them that like, do I really need this? And I get it because I was there. Like I, I and I was like, no, I, I know. But like, if you really work on your sight singing, your timpani skills are going to be so much better. <laughs> I'm developing your ear, and that's just yes. one instrument that it's going to be useful for. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I um I do like to really talk about technique. <laughs> My students yeah. would, you know, I like to talk about fulcrum and muscle groups and understanding stroke types. I'm really passionate about that because knowing what I'm doing and having a control of what I'm doing has really changed my life, you know. And so I'm not saying that, you know, technique is the the be end and and and, and all of everything. Um, but we recently had Mark Ford. He was been in Australia doing uh, amazing things um from UNT. And he um he did a, a workshop with my students and he he said to one of them, you know, uh, there's this specific thing that you need to work on with your with your stroke, blah blah blah. And then I followed up with the question, oh, what would you suggest technically that he can do? Like with you know, I tried to be more technical with the question because I have that about me. Yeah. And he said, oh well, you need to learn with your ears. And I was like, oh okay, yeah. And then I, <laughs> you know, it took me, it took me aback because it was a reminder to me that. Like we were talking about um, uh, with with Steve focusing on sound, it took me back to that same concept. I also have to develop, I have to remind the students to develop their ear, their sound, their concept of sound, their school of sound, you know, um, and and that the technique is a tool for them to achieve that sound or achieve that goal, not the other way around. Yes, it can be an impact, it can be empowerment, it can help you, but it is a tool Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a it's a great reminder. Uh, mm. Can get so focused on hands. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes I do because you're like, okay, we can do this. Let's let's work out how you you know. And so it was just like, oh no, yeah, that's what I do in my own work. Why right. am I? Why do I forget that? So that yeah. just really humbled me. As and, and that's what I was saying is um as a teacher learning, you know, like knowing when that student needs to be thinking about developing a critique of listening or knowing when that student actually just needs more technical advice or knowing to back off on that student. You know, like those are the things that you learn in on the job, I think. And so I'm really grateful to have that opportunity to be to be learning how to nurture students better. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it, it, I know it, it took me a while to, It's there's a lot of times where I have to remind myself, remember, this is not, you're not talking to you, you know, 20 years ago, it's like, well, it's more like <laughs> at least 25, but it's like, uh, but you know, it's like, I, I have sometimes have to be like, okay, they're not in, they're not in the place you were. So this is where like all the techniques about, you have to come in all the different ways to try to figure out what's going to connect with the student. And exactly. We can... And one of the beautiful things is recently I've had a lot of guests like Mark came in, uh, but also we had Robert Otomo, who's a marimba specialist and a close friend of mine. Um, and I realized that as a head of studio, right, I am that consistency that they yeah. see. I'm that week to week. I'm that trust that can be built, you know, with them. Um, and then you have guests come in and they might say the exact same thing that you've been saying for five weeks. But when someone else says it to you, it's like you've never heard it before. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and so that was actually really beautiful to have Rob and then Mark visit in a very quick succession because the students, I saw a difference in their lessons following in those weeks. It was a, um, it was like an energy, but also it was like, oh, I'm open to ideas because Rob's approach and Mark's approach were drastically different, but they were both amazing. Yeah. And work, you know. Um, so that that was a beautiful experience for me to see the students click, you know, with with those types of things. Yeah. No, that it's the reason I was laughing immediately is that 
I've heard like this comes up so often when it's like the, um, you know, like like you've been telling the student this thing for over and over, and then Mark Ford says it, and the student's like, "Oh, oh okay," and you're just like, <laughs> "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> yeah, I I know, and at the time you're like, "Oh, but I swear I said that to you at least five yeah, times." You know, but, <laughs> but am I going crazy? Time, yeah, you're like, it's just listen to me around yeah. here. But um, but also I realized that you know I am not well, no, I am not Mark Ford, but I'm not the mark forward to them. I am that consistency. And that's also a very, very valid part of their development. Um, and you think, well, you know, I reflect on the consistency, consistency of the teachers that I had and then the guests and you put it all together to make that thing. But I, one of the things I'm really trying to encourage with my students now is like you are developing your own school of playing and own school of thought and I am just here to facilitate you. And, yes, those first two years I'm going to drill that technique so you can play. I want you to be able to play anything. But if you want to be an orchestra musician or a contemporary or nothing or a teacher, whatever, like that's awesome. I'm going to show you everything in the room and you're going to and I'm going to empower you to make that choice. And I feel really strongly about that as a as a as a teacher. I always, I, I don't know if you had this experience too, but because I want to, I want to ask you about your undergrad. I know that I felt like once I hit my master's, I was like, oh, I kind of know how to learn now. <laughs> and it was like on a whole of undergrad. I was, I was clearly like, I'm like, I cl- was I not paying attention? I don't think I wasn't paying attention, but I was partly, I was like, oh, my brain, like now I, I'm able to kind of make sense of this. Yeah. I have thought about this a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, I think because, I, like I was saying before, you know, I grew up with with nothing essentially, not nothing, um, nothing in terms of of teachers, in terms of musical stimulation. So I was just so happy for any kind of opportunity that came my way. <laughs> you know, I just, oh, I'm living in the city and I'll do anything and everything and every opportunity I'll play for every guest, I'll do everything. <laughs> you know, I was one of those people, and I still have that that passion. Um, and I wonder sometimes how I achieved anything because I was so chaotic and, (laughs) you know, and I would practice excerpts for days on end and do auditions. And I don't even remember that I did those, but I did them and I succeeded at them or I did recitals and I just extremely practiced seven weeks straight every day, five hours a day. That's not, you know, that's not a healthy way to learn, you know, in the extremes. Um, and so I think I never in my undergraduate, even if someone told me what the thing is that I should do many, many, <laughs> many times, I probably never did it, right? <laughs> and um, after that, you know, I went and studied in Melbourne and I had a different kind of teacher and I was doing a lot of more new complexus music and I had to learn in a very different way for that and that was a wonderful experience to have many, many different teachers along that that road. Um, and then when I was doing my master's, the program, the way it is here, it really is more like you teaching yourself. So that was when I really started to have to think, okay, I'm time poor. I have a small child. I have to work. I was working in the military at that time to support myself through all of those things. And so I had to start to be a lot, a lot smarter. I had to work smarter, not harder at that, at that point. Um, and then when I went to UCSD, I really had to step that up because um, Steve is a fantastic mentor, like I said, and I he's changed my life. But he's not going to sit there and tell me, oh, you need to do that thing on your left hand. That's not, <laughs> or you need to spend more time in the practice room. That, that's not, he's not going to say that to me at all. 
but the expectation. So I really, in my first summer at UCSD, I, I took the summer off to just practice. I sat in a room with a snare drum for three months and I played every single day and I tried a whole bunch of different things. I tried looking in the mirror, I tried recording, I tried all the different books, all the different books that I've done over the years. I came up with different exercises and I just did that for three months and I redid my technique, not so that my hands looked the same, so that they felt the same. So I understood what I was doing as a performer. And then from that point, I felt like, oh, any kind of music is now possible for me. It's just about the conditions. Um, but I, I like there was a click there. And then with the intensity of the program there, you don't always have months to prepare something. You, you don't you don't always have, you know, in the real world, <laughs> not that UCSD is a real world, but, you know, in the real world, you don't have, you don't always have that time. So I really had to learn how to work and I really had to learn how to critique myself, really be honest with myself. Yeah. Have I, have I really honestly done everything that that text is asking me to do? And and have I then put myself into it, blah, 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 you know, so that when I go on stage, have I done everything possible in my being to put the absolute best forward? And if I can say yes and I go out on the stage and it still stuffs up, well, then that's just how life happened that time. But, but knowing in myself that I've given absolutely every bit of my being. So I think my undergraduate was great, you know, in the sense that I had an amazing teacher, Vanessa Tomlinson, and who's also actually going to be at PASIC this year. Um, and... She also studied with Steve actually in the early 90s. She was one of his first students. So I, I have this kind of interesting lineage in that in that sense. But um, she, I would say, is not your most mainstream percussionist, you know, is really into a lot of different things, made me improvise, made me play music that challenged me, but then also would, you know, teach me the, the Ericsson Marimba solo with as much care, you know. So I really... You know, that coupled with my orchestral teachers, I really took all of that on. And I think that's why I really love everything, <laughs> you know, yeah. still, because it was never limited or boxed for me. Yeah. I, I, so much that was awesome there. And particularly, I, I, I wonder if you feel like, I feel like you've said this, and I'll just ask kind of to, to kind of make sure I think mm. I have it. I, I always feel like, I've, I've felt like the, the undergrad, the masters is kind of interesting because to me it felt like an, somewhat of an extension of undergrad. It was like, okay, we're, we're, you know, we're doing what we did, but now we're like more intense and you have more time, blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. I always feel like the doctorate to me is like, that's a different thing. Like you have to, that is all you. It's like, it's not, yeah. it's like what you said, like, like Steve doesn't have to go, Rebecca, you really need to practice. Like, like if he has to tell you that you're in the wrong place. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're beyond no, that. I don't. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, some some of the best lessons that I've had with Steve, and you know, I did do weekly lessons with Steve <laughs> for a very long time. All through COVID, we had these beautiful weekly lessons where I was working on a program at the time by Rebecca Saunders. I was playing her her work Dust. I was getting ready for the American premiere. And that's a really big piece. It's like a 20 minute piece. And we would just have these weekly lessons where I would just play really short bits that weren't ready. They weren't ready to be played. You know, I think there was that conception as well that you have to go into every lesson perfect. And that's just not the case. And Steve was really wonderful with that. You just just bring in what you have and let's let's talk about it and let's play it. And so I really that 
I started to understand what it means to feel safe and trusted in a in a teaching environment, which I really nurture that I want to develop with my my students to the best that I can. Um, but he's not, you know, and just it gets to that point where you're just giving each other ideas and it's not it's not a hierarchical space anymore. He, he did a really wonderful job through the, the five years that I've been there to to make a really even space I never felt like I was being told what to do <laughs> although maybe he would you know give strong opinions because I think that's great to have opinions um so I really I really um value that and I try to remind my students you know you don't have to come into your lesson perfect if you're perfect we wouldn't be having a lesson <laughs> and you know music music is not perfect individuals are not perfect perfectionism is not what we're striving for either um that's one of the things about Steve you know he's played a lot of these pieces a lot yeah. which is awesome. And sometimes sometimes they're perfect, but they're perfect to him and they're perfect to that moment. And so in my own playing, I've had to deal with that concept of perfectionism. And uh, in the past, I would just not want to do things because I was in fear that I would not be perfect at it. Yeah. And that's a really complicated <laughs> mindset to be in. And I, and I think it might have stemmed a little bit from my orchestral training because I really had to be perfect if I wanted to get the gig, you know. Right. <laughs> And um, I just realised recently when I let all that go, you know, during my time uh, uh, in San Diego, if I can let go that pressure and expectation that I'm putting on myself to actually just immerse myself in what I'm doing, I have so much more respect for myself and the music and the process and my concept of music making has changed. My co- my relationship to music making and audience and listener has really changed. And I'm, I'm really grateful that I've been able to make that shift out of perfectionism out of my value as a human being is based on how perfect I am as a performer, you know, getting rid of that, which maybe we don't talk about enough of, but I think it's a really, really interesting part of what we do. So you go after undergrad, you go to, you get another, like a performance certificate. Is that what, what it sounds like you do that before the masters. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. So I, um, I did my undergraduate and then I took a year off to tour with a dance company doing doing a, a show. It was 16 dancers and um, four percussionists, and we just toured with a really amazing percussionist called Michael Askell, who, who was part of Synergy. I don't know if you've heard of that. It was one of Australia's first percussion ensemble, kind of this Kramada era, you know, um, the Amadinda era. Um, and um, so I was really fortunate to just be this young kid that was in this this cool group, doing, you know, learning on the job how to how to play chamber music, and I was you know, um, I was really grateful for that. Um, uh, so I did that for a while and then I moved to Melbourne and I studied at the Victorian College of Arts with Peter Neville, who's a percussionist in Elysian, a new music ensemble out of Huddersfield in, in, in London, but they also, they're an Australian based ensemble. And, um, so there I really started playing new complexus music and music of Lisa Lim and, and sort of getting more involved in that. And my time with Peter was, was wonderful. And he's a really close you know, I hold him really close to my heart. And after that, I came back to Brisbane and I worked in the orchestra. Um, and I was teaching, you know, I was teaching in elementary schools and working in the orchestra and freelancing and taking any kind of gig that would come up because I that's kind of what you did. And then I really started to not enjoy that life, I have to say. <laughs> I start I stopped enjoying working in the orchestra and I and I stopped enjoying elementary teaching at that period of time. Um, and that's when I decided to go full-time in the military, in the Royal Australian Navy. So I had already 
done reserve work, but I was actually a full-time sailor in Sydney working in the military band and I was, um, you know, their mallet percussionist in, in the wind orchestra and also the ceremonial drummer, so I do a lot of parades. And that was a great life in terms of, okay, I had a great salary and I had great benefits and I got to sort of spend time with my daughter. She was quite young at that age. But also the the work is grueling and it's... Um, Okay, Even though going it's... this place tomorrow. <laughs> well, what's that? Well, you know, like you could be sent to a different place next week for two weeks, you know, at the drop of a hat and you can't say no. You know, there's not a lot of choice in that workplace, but that's the nature of the job. That position was a, it was a performance position, right? The, the... Yeah, well, yeah, but first you have to join the military. So I did my three months of basic training, you know, everything that comes with that fire and flood and running and... <laughs> All the ridiculous things or that running. we do. Yeah. Yeah. So technically you're a sailor first, which, you know, you don't take very seriously when you work in the band. You know, we're not as elite as perhaps the president's own and all of <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> um, some of those players are just phenomenal, you know, to get into that position is very difficult. And um, so, yeah, but I was just, just performing. I was just performing, although I did my training as a sailor and we would be wearing uniform every day and playing for whichever president came that week you know (laughs) um but I also learned a lot in that job about being a human being and about the world and about um practicing you know I I I took that as an opportunity to have a bit of a hiatus in a way you know I worked in the job I decided during that job to enroll in my research master's which was performing but I also spent a lot of my downtime at work writing my my master's thesis because I just had time to think because I wasn't freelancing and just running from gig to gig to school to school to daycare pickup, you know, like I, I'm not saying the job was perfect and I was the perfect person for the job, <laughs> but I found a way. The other thing that that job gave me was it gave me the finances to travel overseas. Mm. So in Australia, it's much harder to connect overseas unless you travel and it's really far and it's really expensive. So I was finally able to sort of go and do summer programs and that's where the opportunity to go to UC San Diego came up because I took that chance. I took those risks to go over and do things. Like where did you go in the US? Um, I went to Banff, actually. Okay. Oh, one it, of yeah. the first ones I went to in Canada. And yeah. I did the Roots and Rhizome program. And Steve was there, who I'd met, you know, quite a number of times before. But and then Ayun was there, who I'd met, and Sarah Hennies was there as well mm-hmm. the year that I went. And Ayun has been a, an amazing mentor for me she's she's one of the most phenomenal individuals and um so I'm really grateful for meeting those people and from that came about the offer to go to study um in San Diego and I at at the beginning when I when I got the email I was like is this the right person like is he thinking about the right person like me what have I got to offer I couldn't see the value that I had at that point because I was just busy with life so it really um Putting myself out there to go to these programs really was one of the things that opened up this whole new world for me with percussion. Yeah. It's it's great to hear the path um, Mm. of that kind of thing because because that is like a legit way. Those kinds of programs are – it's okay, so like PASIC is one thing. Which we yeah, know. basic is one thing. It's one thing, but it's not. It's not the way that you would really connect with someone because it's just too big and there's too many. You people can't that... connect. You, yeah, you 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 know, basic is so intense and it's, it's intense. so quick, and you get so exhausted. Yes. You know, 
if you try and see everything and buy sticks and then have a chat and then go have a drink and then you're like, wow, I could sleep for a week, you know. (laughs) Exactly. I want to back up, though, because when Mm. you go to where is your um, where's the orchestral training happen? My orchestral training happened in my undergraduate. This was, you know, this is what I thought was what it meant to be a percussionist when I'm 17 years old, because all I've ever seen is the orchestra. So this is the model. So in those in those, um, you know, the first four years of my undergraduate, I worked with the, the principal from the orchestra here. It was my teacher. But I also just, I was one of those people that auditioned for everything, mm-hmm. every national youth orchestra, every orchestra that was going to tour overseas. I, you know, I put my my tape in or I'd, I'd yeah. go to Sydney to audition, you know, and I'd go and take lessons with everyone. I was one of those annoying people that was just like, hi, I'm in town, you know, this principal, could I please have a lesson? Oh, mm-hmm. can I do a casual audition for you? So I just... I just thought, okay, I need to play with everyone, with everything and in every way. And so that was (laughs) my approach um, to orchestral training. And so I did a lot in the practice room. I had some really, really wonderful teachers, but also um, there was a lot of other orchestral-minded students at that time. And so that drives you, that, you know, not the competition, but just, you know, the love of it, the love of the the orchestra. Um, so I did that, but it was really when I got working in the job that I really started to learn. You know, I spent seven years working in the the professional orchestra here in Brisbane and, you know, doing opera seasons, doing ballet seasons, having that time to learn about placement, to learn about sound in the orchestra, to learn about auxiliary techniques. A lot of those things you only learn on the job. You know, you can practice your cymbals or your tambourine till you're, you know, you know, exhausted. But really I found I learned how to learn that stuff on the job like I did when I went on this this tour with the dance company. I really learned how to have intense chamber music. You know, I was playing on Farlow every night. That was in that was one of the pieces in the program. <laughs> um, so just one of the pieces that Michael, um, he premiered that piece. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, I guess in in those playing experiences, that's where that that orchestral training came from. Did you like doing that that training? Like, did you like I practice? Because that's a different level, different type of practicing <laughs> than what yeah. what Steve Schick would have you do, for example. Yeah, um, you know, this is tricky. I think about this with my students a lot, and you know, I have actually attempted. I've never been successful, may I add. Um, or orchestral auditions you know here we have them and they're about 90 pages long I don't know what they're like in the U.S. but you know if if you're going to do a a job for a principal it's going to be 90 pages of every single excerpt you've ever seen in your life and there's going to be 100 people on the day and it's all screened and it's very intense and it's very very high pressure and I did a couple of those and I never you know I never cracked it but I did I did work and I, I I did love it you know I did love playing in the orchestra like it 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 can be such a beautiful experience. Do I love excerpts and see the point of them? Not always, I have to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a disconnect on, you know, I think about the music that I'm making now and the and the thought and the care and the love and the joy that I get out of it. And then I think about, you know, doing all those excerpts and I teach them a lot now. Cool so us. I'm really glad I had this cool orchestra training. But, yeah, I know. So, <laughs> you know, I'm glad that I, that I really, um, honed in KJ all those years because now I can just play it for them (laughs) I don't have to think think about a lot of them I don't have to prepare you know I can do them um because you know with my students when they bring me a piece that I've never heard I make my effort to learn 
that piece in a way, not note for note, but I will play it and see, okay, well, that's the thing that's going on there. If I don't know that piece or I haven't played that piece, Um, but with excerpts, I don't have to. But yeah, I have in my later years struggled to understand the existence of that kind of being. I know it serves a purpose. Playing in the orchestra is much more fun, but, you know, you can spend 10 years of your life playing excerpts and never get a chance to play in the orchestra. Right. And that's a very yeah. bizarre existence. And it it really hones into this concept of perfectionism and hierarchies and, and personal values, and I, and I really don't subscribe to that. But um, I'm really grateful for the techniques that I learned through those processes. So that's a complicated answer. I'm sorry. I don't have a... A great answer for that one. <laughs> it was uh, honestly, it was not meant to be. It's it sounds like an easy question, but I, it's not. Yeah, I I, I know that not. because um, I've definitely talked to people over the years who did that. As that was part of their life was doing was like taking a yeah. lot of auditions and or doing some of something like what you did, where you were in a you had a large ensemble job mm-hmm. and not then they were just not feeling fulfilled yeah. and. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it completely makes sense because I th- one of the other things that I'm curious about with your particularly with your your orchestral experience and your experience with the military bands is you you are not the artist in charge. You're 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 a tool uh, of of yeah. someone's other of someone's vision. Mm-hmm. And did did that part get get tiring or you're like, you know, I kind of am ready to, to do my own thing, actually. <laughs> I think in my time in the orchestra, because I was only ever um, a contracted musician, you know, I was never a tenured mm-hmm. you know, position in the orchestra. So I was always under that pressure of the section and yeah. not only the pressure to always play at your best, which you want to do anyway, um, but, you know, I, I never had a lot of um, control over all the sounds I wanted and all the ways that I wanted to do that. And in a lot of sections you do, you know, it really depends on the principle of that time. And um, that wasn't the section that I felt I was being, you know, my best self. But I think what really happened was I would go in, I would work and I would do the stuff and then I not feeling fully fulfilled, you know, that there's more to me, or maybe I don't fit in here, or why is this not sitting? And I think that feeling started to develop more and more and more. And then I really started to question, wow, I've dedicated my life. And I thought that I was an orchestral musician and this is who I am. You know, this was my identity. (laughs) And so to sort of just to realize that maybe that wasn't to now be at a point, you know, reflectively to reflect on that time where I really do think that in my music I am representing the person that I am, which, you know, is not always important. Everyone has different functions and relationships with music. Like you can just be an orchestral musician. That's awesome. (laughs) You could play in the military band and clock off at the end of the day and that's awesome. (laughs) Um, Or you could want something else out of it and that's kind of what I want and I think I was always looking for that. I just didn't know that I could be a musician like this. So for me going to the United States helped me open my eyes. I think it's very easy in Australia to put our blinkers on about like, okay, this is just how we make music here. But but I feel in North America you're a lot more connected to a lot of different things and the institution, um, the system of the institution is very different, the way it's structured, you know, in in the American universities system. Um, And, you know, the military band, I also learn a lot. You know, I had never really done ceremonial drumming before I I joined and I didn't always love being on parade because it was physically grueling, but I did learn a lot about 
about, you know, playing drums and, and playing in the wind band can be really hard. It can be so hard, you know, so many licks and things. And so, the, uh, you know, I just took it for what it was and I learned a lot in the process. It's like, I, I know, I realize I, I should be separating kind of like some of the, like both the training for that versus, you know, what you, what actually was worth it about those experiences that they're, they're not the same. I, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> no, I I, I reckon, yeah, and I, I know you know that. Well, how long was the span between your your training and then your master's? I think I finished my undergraduate when I was around 21. That's a standard age yeah, yeah. For, for us. So I would say 21. Um, I went to Melbourne at 22 and did a bunch of stuff. Um, and then um, I took a couple years off. You know, that was a couple of years of just freelancing, you know, also having my daughter. I had her quite young. So that was, um, you know, part part of life. So I took a couple years, I would say, maybe two two years between, two to three years between finishing that undergraduate time to then deciding I wanted to do the master's um, and joining the Navy and and combining those two things, really. And how long were you in the Navy, Anne? I was... In total, I was in the Navy for close to seven years, but only two of those years were as a full-time okay. um, member. Yeah. Gotcha. I was What I was thinking about, it was, what, was there, did you notice a difference in yourself when you take, when you start the master's and doctorate because you've taken a break and you've like, you've had to live life, you, you've lived your life. And I, I think you, you kind of alluded to like, you, you have your child, like <laughs> things ha- like life happens. And, and so when you come back, are you, do you notice that you're like, you're actually a different person now? 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Having been, being out of the university or been out gigging or whatever it is, freelancing, that, that definitely is a reality check, which once you take away that warm hug of an undergraduate degree <laughs> and you're in the world. Um, so that's, yeah, absolutely. How did that impact in an actual output capacity? I think when I came to my master's, the music that I chose to play was much more specific. And then it gets more specific as I get into my doctorate. But in my undergraduate, I was like, okay, let's do everything, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, let me try to do everything. I want to learn everything. I'm going to play everything, blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe not being specific, maybe having kind of an aesthetic. Like I'm thinking back now, my my final recital in my undergraduate was De Marthen by Zanarkis. I played a, a Nancy Zeltman solo. Um, I played Anvil Chorus. Um, I played For Marimba and Tape by Martin Wesley Smith. I don't know if you know that really bizarre piece. Um, and I did an improvisation. So that's a really kind of varied program anyway for a fourth year, you know, a senior or whatever you call it to do. But having that time off, I came back into the Masters with really, really specific things that I was focusing on. I, I did the the Michael Finnessy solo. Um, there's a Glockenspiel solo that I play that's um uh, you can find online um, and Lisa Lim, her work. I wrote about that, and then I also wrote my own pieces um, it, as part of my master's research submission. So I, I wrote ten pieces that I had improvised and worked sort of within this creative practice kind of space because that is also part of the person that I am. You know, I don't really separate 
making music myself versus interpreting music, I think that's all kind of holistic to me. So so that was a big part of the Masters as well. I was focusing on repertoire, but I was also focusing on myself as an individual um, and developing those research skills. You know, I also, in that time, because the, the, the way the Masters of Research is here, you know, I really had to learn how to do a literature review. I really had to learn, um, you know, about certain methodologies and, and referencing and structuring of things. So I, I really did that hard work. <laughs> it was very painful. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but but that put me in a great position to start the doctorate. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are doing that for the first time in those first years of the doctorate, and I had already had to go through the trouble of caring about literature reviews <laughs> and all of that that kind of thing. Yeah. Like you see, you've jogged a number of things in me. <laughs> Just talking uh, I've about. I've triggered you. <laughs> no, it's good. No, and, but and it's fine because it's. I I think about how bad of a writer I was until I started having to do like doctoral writing. And I was like, yeah. I, it's like, then it finally hit me like, oh, this is why my writing sucks. Like I, now I get it. <laughs> and, and now I'm a much better, I'm a really good editor, like, because I've had exactly. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And and now I supervise students. Yes. I'm not supervising doctoral students right now. I'm not qualified, but I am supervising masters and, and honors students. And so I would not be able to do that. I think the other really important thing that I reflect on actually is in my undergraduate degree, I wasn't always an over a high achiever. Sorry, not over. I did try to overachieve, but I, I was never a, I wasn't always a high achiever. You know, I wasn't always that person that won the competition. You know, I didn't really win any. I didn't win the concerto. I failed subjects because I just I didn't know how or what or I didn't have the the support to be able to achieve. You know, yeah. we're talking the kind of early-ish 2000s at this point. You know, the mm-hmm. internet, YouTube maybe exists. Facebook doesn't exist just right. yet. Yeah. YouTube <laughs> um, had, was, was, would be a thing. In it it, it, it would have. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, around that 2005 period of time, I, I, I was that's when I was sort of, you know, coming through all this stuff. And yeah. I, I sometimes just didn't know that I had to turn up on time to things. You know, like (laughs) I really failed a lot in my undergraduate at tasks and at subjects. But and so I really try to remind my students of that, that you don't have to be succeeding all the time because the the journey is really, really long. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One thing I was thinking of is, when you get to when you get to San Diego, mm. what's the first like? Oh, this is just a different place, different people. Everything's like what? What was like your first like? Oh my gosh, I'm so not in uh, <laughs> Oh, like everything. Well, you know, I, I had <laughs> I had visited many times, right? Sure, so yeah. I've been to America many times, but it's different when you're like. I'm going to sell every single item that I have and move my family to the other side of the world. And I remember everything in the suburbs looking different to the suburbs that we have. Mm-hmm. And for a long time being like, oh, Australia is more beautiful. Australia is better, you know, you know. And then I just got over that and I was like, you know what, America is just beautiful in its own way and I've really grown to love America. And I think the perception that people that are non-Americans have of America can not always do it justice, you know, because, you know, it has a lot of division and it has a lot of extreme and it has a lot of different views. And it's very easy from the outside just to see the radical. Um, And so I really, 
my perception of America changed over time to be a, one of love, you know, especially somewhere like San Diego. Oh, you know, San Diego. You landed it's a border it, like, city. Yeah, I know. It's it, I've got the beach. You've got the border. You've got the desert. You've the got West, the weather's like awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing. The beaches and the weather are awesome here too. But I think for me, you know, everything kind of tasted a bit different. It took me a little while to like you know get into it. And I remember one of the first nights, my daughter was like, "I she, I don't like any of this food. I can't eat it." And we're going to find the one store that had like Vegemite so we can make it toast or something. You know, it was it was like it was like ten dollars for a small bottle. It was, of course, you know, it was. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, something ridiculous yeah. at the time, yeah. and it was all very desperate. And <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, I think from a playing perspective, I was like. Oh wow! Everyone is good, <laughs> sure. which was which was like okay. You need to get into gear. It's not like oh, you're the best here, yeah. which maybe could be said in different circles at home before I left. Yeah. Um, when I was like, oh no, I'm just one of the people that's here. So that was a big thing for me to be like, okay, I just need to find a place to to find myself here. I, I I was like, did your daughter like hang out with sea lions? I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> she went to elementary school and she she really liked it. She's yeah. she's back in Australia now, but um, she had a great time. You know, it was yeah. a really wonderful experience. But she was pretty young. You know, it was that pre K kind of thing. So a lot of her memories are a little bit you know skewed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a. Um, it's funny when my my wife is a teaches in the communication department here at Mizzou mm-hmm. and. Um, there was a job offer she got, this was like five or six years ago, um, at, I think it was San Diego state. So not same city, oh, but you know, yes. different university. Yes. Yeah. SDSU. And, um, and it, it didn't, you know, like didn't come to fruition, but, hmm. but it was really kind of hilarious. I was sitting there like, cause I had, I had visited, she had gone to a conference in San Diego and I had gotten a visit and I was like, this place is incredible. Like I, I want to come back all the time. I haven't been back in like 20 years, but, but it was funny. Cause I was like, <laughs> I was like, I never thought we like this could be an option, and and it didn't. Like I said, it didn't happen. And yeah, we knew quickly yeah. it wasn't going to. It was fine, but it was one of those like, oh my god, like it was so. Yeah. It's kind of funny when you're like you're there and you're you actually <laughs> really get to experience it. Oh, I I've fallen in love with with California. Yeah, you know, um, I have a relative in Oakland. Mm. You know, of my, of my 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 partner, and so um, I've been able to travel. You know, during COVID, we would go up there a lot, and yeah. and I never thought that I would spend time in San Francisco, or I never thought that I would. You know, I've been really lucky through through Steve and through UCSD to be able to do some gigs in Los Angeles mm. um, at last minute. You know, they're like, oh, we need someone who can play something really hard at the last minute, but it's on you know Disney Hall stage. Okay, Rebecca, can you go do? That? <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, this is high pressure. But never in my life did I think that I would be able to go and do these really cool things and make make new connections. Sure. Um, but also travel across the border. You know, there's a lot of students in the graduate department that are from Ensenada or for Baja, from Baja California. And so yeah. being able to go and experience Mexico in lots of different ways with people from there is really like beautiful and fantastic experience. Um, and so I really, I've really enjoyed both of the complexities of, of living in San Diego and it is, it is pretty beautiful. <laughs> yeah. All right. I finish up with a segment called random ask questions. Oh gosh. Okay. Oof. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's, yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> All right. First, first question, Rebecca, is what's an issue in percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? 
That is such a hard question for random ask questions. Um, <laughs> that's, that's such a hard question. Oh, that gets on my nerves. What's up? Okay, I have to be completely honest. When I see all male programs and all male sections constantly, it drives me insane in 2022 that you don't have enough initiative to, you know, in, sorry, let me rephrase, to invest in diversity is really, really important. It's beyond just saying. So for me, when I see all male sections, all male programs still, I get really, really annoyed. Um, I'm not saying that everyone has to sign up to a social justice cause. It's not, I'm not trying to push any agenda on anyone, but, you know, women or non-binary individuals or, or um you know, Indigenous communities, they are part of our social fabric. And so to just completely eliminate them from what we do and then be like, oh, it's fine, is not fine. So I think that um, it's not about favouring one individual or demographic over another, but it, it's a conscious effort. And so that does definitely get on my nerves. <laughs> it's funny because, like, that somewhat leads into my next question I was going to ask. Okay. Um, because... <laughs> I've thought about this in relation – someone else I talked to brought up kind of the the structures that are there. And, and well, I'll think of it in terms of – I'll frame this in terms of like orchestral percussion for, for one, mm-hmm. where the fact that someone could, let's say, practice for 10 hours a day. Okay, what infrastructure has to be there that that person would do that? Okay, probably doesn't have a family. They probably have money already. They like have access to all the stuff. And you just think of how that limits who would even consider that job. So that was like, that's one way I, I think of it. I, I did, did, had, had that come across your, your, your thinking in some of these ways? That, that's something that I think about all the time, like yeah. barriers of entry into the university and to success. And, you know, I don't come from a family that has money. And a a lot of the time when you get to this pointy end of your career with, you know, the pyramid of the people that are sort of the most successful, a lot of the time they come from from families and situations that can fund them to just go and do that thing or do that thing. And I've always had to support, you know, through other kinds of work. So I'm very conscious with my students that they, not everyone comes in equal, in terms of um, what they have at their disposal, because I never, I never had that either. <laughs> so that's definitely those those levels of privilege are really complicated, um, and they're they're real. I think that goes back into the things that we were talking about before. We might have only been talking about it through all these specific female composers or these specific things, but to take a feminist view and removing the female from the feminist view okay so we're thinking about feminism as a concept as a tool for change or decolonialism as a tool for change what you do is you've got to work from the bottom up it's not about the woman or the man yes it may be have been centered in that movement however it's a form of practice of tool about breaking down the hierarchy and sort of equalizing stuff so definitely I've definitely thought about it (laughs) and I'm very conscious of it with my students because of the way you brought it up where you're like all met these all male sections and, and all that. <laughs> I sound so nasty don't I I'm no, sorry. no 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 but it's real <laughs> like I mean I it's a it's a very real thing and uh, what I was part of how I sometimes frame this is I, I kind of leave it open ended and I, I would say something like Rebecca being a percussionist who's also a woman go where you want you know I 
identifying as female and being a percussionist doesn't have to mean anything. And I have a lot of friends and colleagues who say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Sure. Um, for instance, I had a I had a interaction with Marta Pianskaya, who I, I played I played her space space model. I put the time in because that's a really, really early, early piece as well. And I corresponded with her and she sent me her very early recordings and she's so kind and, and warm. And a lot of the interviews that she did early on is like, I don't want to talk about being a woman and playing percussion. I just want to play percussion. And you know, and it refers me back to Pauline Oliveros, you know, the the 74 or 8 or 6, I can't remember what year it is, in the New York Times when don't call us lady composers, you know, value us for our art. So there's multiple layers going on here. So one, yes, I am a female. Yes, a lot of the time I am the only female in the room. Um, is there cultural change that needs to happen? Yes, that that's true. Um, do I want to get ahead for being a female? No, that's not, that's not it at all. But I want to have the same... Um, I want to feel like I can be a part of a culture where I'm not on the outer. I also want to be able to have the same opportunities and to be able to learn and interact with teachers and mentors and in industry in the same way. And I think that change is happening. I do. Um, I think that change isn't happening in some in some ways. Um, so I think the the concept of being um, female and 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 being a percussionist is, is a complex one. You know, I do this, this concert series and I call it feminine virtuosities and I'm not talking about non-male virtuosities or I'm not talking about, you know, just I'm just playing music by women, but I'm talking about a sensibility and a spectrum um, of, of femininity or masculinity. That's what that that whole project is, is trying to advocate for. Um, so I think it's I think it's unique to the individual. Some people will want to talk about it and be outspoken about that, and that's awesome. And and a lot of um, you know non-binary or LGBT LGBTQI plus <laughs> individuals will also want to talk about that, and that's great because that can be uh, that can be a therapy, that can be cathartic, that can be a way to be present. And sometimes presence is just enough as as a as a as a uh, demographic, uh, but. For me, I try not to focus on it, but I know it's in every part of the things that I do and the, and the way that I do them. And um, apart from playing and focusing on the work of, of female composers, I just actually really love their work. <laughs> I really love that music, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this topic because it's part of my research yeah. and it's really important to who I am. And I think working in the orchestral scene is super male dominated and working in the military is super male dominated. So I have at times really had my, you know, being different has affected me, you know, my time in San Diego, it hasn't, I think, you know, it's not the kind of place that focuses on that. And so there are hubs of people that that's not a barrier. Right. But you know, for me to get to be able to go to San Diego, <laughs> you know, um, is I, I, you know the path um, is a whole thing. But um, th this is all really part of my research. I could probably answer it at thirty-five, but I think <laughs> I can also <laughs> answer it at forty. But I, you know, sometimes what happens when you when you do be really outspoken about issues is that people start to think of you as a really difficult woman. <laughs> Yes. I mean, that, again, and, something I don't have to worry about. Like, I mean, it, I know. Yeah, I, you know, 
it, it happens. You know, as soon as you say feminine virtuosities, people go, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Sound isn't feminine. It's like, well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the practice that we have as percussionists being gendered because it is, because there is one gender that is is taking, you know, in these different ways. And so it's, it, you know, there's so many layers to that. But um, I think it's great that people are talking about it. That's good. All right, we're going we're gonna to have some fun questions now. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm ready. All right. <laughs> all right. Um, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Oh, God. Um, I recently, I really like boots, and mm-hmm. I recently bought um, these really cool, they looked cool in the store, you know, green gum boots. And I thought, yeah, I could wear these with everything. Cannot wear them with everything. So that's my current most impractical um, item that I have. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> cool. All right. Um, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, 100%. My daughter, every time she rolls her eyes. Oh, really? Is just, yeah, mini uh mini me yeah <laughs> like when she's rolling her eyes that's you rolling her eyes is that why it looks identical she's not <laughs> even mimicking it, it, you know people go oh wow you look like you know you could be sisters and then she's like oh my god I hate it when people say we look alike so it's that is true it is unfortunate we do look <laughs> very much alike <laughs> oh, that's hilarious all right, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Oh, everything I touch. <laughs> <laughs> my my partner is a fantastic cook and so um I don't um have to <laughs> do anything. My biggest kitchen mess like I'm really not great. I hate to say it. I can cook to sustain my child to keep her alive <laughs> and I generally am alive for myself and beyond that <laughs> We don't have much success. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I like it. All right. What is a what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Oh, um, I remember in COVID last Christmas, we had never done the Die Hard thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so both of them, we watched one and two on Christmas Eve. Wow. Both both great and terrible. Both very great and both very terrible simultaneously. Yes. <laughs> oh, so you're 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 answering both questions. I'm answering both. With, okay, gotcha. With both. <laughs> nice. There's probably more I can think of as yeah, but sure. the first thing comes to mind. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, you, now you you see why Die Hard is a Christmas movie, right? I do. Okay. I, I do see why. The second one, though, you know, when he's on the plane at the end and it's like, this is too much. Like- <laughs> <laughs> right. We we will only have like two more, two or three more uh, sequels after this. Like, and then that's it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. All right. What's a favorite book? I'm a really big fan of Anne Carson. Um, so uh, oh. she's a Canadian author but uh, specializes in ancient greek and and um really really fascinating kind of eccentric author and so i'm a huge fan of autobiography in red and red doc which is the sequel and it's kind of anything that she writes i'm 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 pretty much into so that's that's a really fantastic book there's another one i i read recently couldn't handsome um 
Hunger, which is about a struggling artist in in Denmark, and you know, I think like 100, 200 years ago, um, that was a really fascinating one of those books that you can't put down, like a quick read. Mm. I'm also a huge fan of Rebecca Solnit. Um, oh yeah, Orwell, yeah, yeah, Orwell's Roses and and Wanderlust, and you know, kind of all the things that she she writes. I'm really, I'm also really into that. It's off the top of my head, that's a couple. Yeah. Um, it she's um Rebecca Solnit is uh she's like a like f- like writes about feminism is that right she or- also does yeah she yeah. writes um she has written books about feminism um and some of her latest ones are, are indirectly about it but also mm-hmm. not um okay. you know also with Orwell's Roses it's it's not so much as about George Orwell in a way but um that also Clarice Lispector. I don't know if you've heard of her, but it's, it's just a really fascinating um, author um, as well. So yeah, d- different ranges uh, for me. What, what is the the last person you mentioned? What what genre? Fiction, mm-hmm. I would say. She's written novellas to sort of more um, in depth books, um, and uh, had a really sort of interesting um, upbringing. Was orphaned, mm. uh, moved to Brazil. Um, and wrote later in her life, was married to a diplomat. And so being an author came later in her life, um, Hour of the Star, Agua Viva, some of the books. And so she's she's really fascinating. I really love her approach to making syntax really complicated and, and layered in a lot of different ways. So that's really interesting to me as well. Do you have a go-to karaoke song? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, and its for title very, is and its title is I, I can't remember the name of it. It's for a very long time. It was that Maroon Five song, um, "Sunday Morning." Is that the oh name? yeah 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 yes yeah for a very long time that was the go to. Um, I'm also a huge Whitney Houston fan, Ooh. so any kind of Whitney song that's upbeat, you could you could put in the mix. Um, yeah, I'd probably say those. <laughs> That's the go-to. It's been been a while, though, since I've since I've hit the floor. (laughs) At least what three, four weeks at this point. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Nice. uh, Do you like this? My love is your love, Whitney Houston. Do you know that one? Oh yeah, is that that's the album though, right? Right, but it's a song. It's the one that has the daughter on it as well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's my. I think that might be my favorite song of hers. yeah. But yeah, like how will I know and I want to dance with someone. Oh yeah, all of the, I have it on vinyl. I have her greatest hits on vinyl. It's yeah. it's wonderful. <laughs> so good. What's something that if so you meet someone and mm-hmm. um and they say and thinking like something obscure, like pop culture really something, but they say I like blank and then you immediately are like, "Well, we're good." What would that be for you? Well, I recently um decided that I need to be more easygoing (laughs) (laughs) that I that I maybe work a little bit too much and I take everything a little bit too seriously and um my partner's really into friends and I don't like friends and I've never (laughs) been able to get on the train right so I'm pretty much put in the psychopath pile for all Americans no um so I thought okay I'm not going to get into friends. I'm not, you're never going to hear me do a friends reference except maybe here or there. So I need to find something. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to start from the beginning and I'm going to watch Seinfeld. Okay. <laughs> and so I did. 
Yeah. <laughs> Every night I watched a couple, you know, in my in my break, on my yeah. summer break, I watched a couple of Seinfeld. And now I find myself making Seinfeld references all the time. And then I find other people making them. And it's an instant connector. Oh, yeah. that's that's hilarious. I love that it comes from the you're like, I'm not going to be into friends. I love that that is the, the starting point. That's my favorite part of this whole story. I was like, I need something like friends, but I'm not going to watch friends. So yeah, I'll, yeah. I guess I'll start Seinfeld and see if I like it. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Have you ever watched um, Parks and Rec? I have not, but I've heard about it because a lot of friends are like, you've got to watch Parks and Rec. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really good. Like it's, it's another one of those shows that, that, I think like you, you would run into people who like know. Kind yeah, of kind of like the thing. office, right? Yeah. yeah, the office is another one that's kind of like that. 30 Rock was like that too. Um, I don't uh, know if you, yeah. I do remember that. I think I watched a little bit of Brooklyn Nine-Nine yeah. uh, like years ago, but it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that's 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 hilarious. If if uh what would be I'm curious in the in Australia, what would be like that level of show? I would never. Oh I'm sure I've never heard of one. But no, like, what would be um, like if someone came up to you and they're like, "Oh, I I was on YouTube and I found like five episodes of blank," and you'd be like, "What?" Um, I hate to say we don't have anything okay. <laughs> of that nature. I think sure. you know America is really it started that sitcom kind of vibe we have a couple of shows that were on the air for like 25 years and every night at 7 p.m they were on but they were kind of romantic drama you know Mm -hmm. kind of things but never no I I honestly can't think of something but I have to say in this effort to be more easygoing you know I don't have a television I'm one of these people that doesn't have a television Mm -hmm. (laughs) not that you really need one anymore so I I regrettably I can't think of anything okay that's fine that's fine that's that's it's kind of fascinating stuff. I got you. Now, so because you said you said that you've gotten to travel, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering, uh, you've traveled to, you've gotten to travel to places, but where is somewhere you haven't gotten to get to that you still want to go? Oh, I've always wanted to go um, to Norway. That's been on my list. I've been to Denmark um, a couple of times, but uh, my daughter, her father's side, uh, are Norwegian, so I spent a period of time studying Norwegian actually. Um, and I was really, you know, that was a really exciting and beautiful thing and learning about culture there. So that's always been a place I'd really like to go. Um, I've always really wanted to go to Alaska. I've never got the chance to go. Maybe to see the lights or see the tundra, you know, that's something that I really want to go. But I also, there's many parts of Australia that I haven't had the opportunity to go to, um, like Uluru, which is like a, a, a Indigenous area of rock that we have right in the center of our country I've never been there or I've never been to Kakadu which is in the north there's all these like beautiful uh you know rainforests in the north and then freezing cold Antarctica kind of in Tasmania you know near there so there's so many complexities to Australia that I realize I also haven't seen which um I need to do that's a, that's great that's awesome I will. I've never. So it's interesting. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave this on the record. I've never said this to. But um, I was in Australia for three weeks when I was the, like 30 years ago now um, wow. with the youth orchestra. So I've actually been to Uluru. Um, That's that was amazing. one part of the trip. Did you enjoy it? Oh yeah, it was incredible. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's near nothing. Like, I mean, Alice there's Springs, nothing. Yeah. yeah, there's like Alice Springs, <laughs> The Rock, and like literally thousands of miles. Like, people uh, don't believe me when I say the center is a desert. Like, it actually oh, it is. is a desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, Brisbane was not one of the places we went to. We were in, okay. um, we were in Perth. We did um, Innisfail, and wow. uh, so we did. Yes. That's where we did Great Barrier Reef. Yes, and then um, Sydney and mm-hmm. Melbourne. And when I was there, I actually went to, um, and I can't think of the name of the place, but my I had a host family who lived like an outside out of Melbourne, and then we went another two hours away to the uh, Promontory. Ocean Grove, like did you Ocean Road? Did you do? We the, did. Oh, I can't. I can never remember the name of it, but it had penguins on it. <laughs> I don't know, but that sounds okay. great. I was our host family was crazy. It was like, I was like, we could go to Melbourne, but I. It's like, do you want to see like way out there? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Take me as far that away as we can go. Very Australian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was, I mean, it was incredible. I've never, I haven't been back. Um, yeah. I want to get oh, back. You'll have to go. It's a really beautiful country. And, you know, we've just kind of opened up again now sure. after COVID. We were really closed down. Yes, yeah. <laughs> We really isolated ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's really great to be able to travel freely again. Yeah. It really is. And it's just a lot of Australians travel because you're here. A lot of people don't. Like my my parents have never left the country, mm-hmm. which is pretty not not uncommon for that generation. But um, a lot of people my age, you really you want to live here, but you want to travel. Like you want to yeah. go on your trips and and all that kind of thing. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. Okay, a couple more strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. The one that comes to my mind is actually fairly recent, and this has never happened before. So it was a shock when it happened. Um, so one of our professors, Le Liang, his composer, he wrote a solo called Trans, and then he wanted it to be made into a trio for this one particular performance. So my two colleagues and I were like, yep, from, from Redfish, Bluefish, we were like, okay, we can we can make something in this piece. And Toward the end, it was like really heavy-handed. You know, we were playing really pretty loud, pretty fast. You know, it was very flashy. It was one of those kinds of moments. So very exciting. And my colleague um, Mike, he was playing, and he he hit whatever it was that he was was hitting. And the top of the mallet, like the head of the mallet of you know, I think it was like those pink innovative uh, multi ones. It just came right off and it hit me right in the face in the concert. This is dead, like in the concert, right? It goes right off and it slams into my face and goes off of my face into the first row. And we're not even that close. And it was like (laughs) being punched in the face. It, It was probably one of the most bizarre things that has ever happened. And then uh, we hadn't finished the piece. Like, we had to keep going. He just picked up another stick and I just ignored that that happened. And X amount of people didn't see it, but some people did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that really happened. So we talk about that a lot. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Did, yeah. did you have, like, a welt or something like that after? I did, yeah. I had, like, I didn't have a black eye, but I had a very serious, looks like you just got hit in the head yeah, of the yeah. stick. <laughs> yeah. People are coming up to you like, Rebecca, is everything okay? It's like, yes, I did not get punched in the face. <laughs> Yeah, it was really bizarre. <laughs> oh, that's that's crazy. I mean, it must have happened. Like, there was no way you could have dodged it. Like, it happened, like, in an instant, right? 
No, like it happened and I didn't even know it was coming because I'm yeah, just right. like, hey, you know, my head's in the part, I'm playing, their yeah. heads are in the part. We're like toward the end, you know, it's the sort of climactic part and it's just like, poof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you sh- it should have been filmed, like to yeah. be a meme. It could be a meme. Yeah, definitely. I would love it to be a meme. <laughs> awesome. Okay, last question. What one piece okay. of art, whether it could be music or movies, books or podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything, has impacted you the most recently? Oh, my God. These are such hard questions for the end. These are so hard. What has impacted you <laughs> the most? God, this is a killer. We're never going to get out of this. Uh, <laughs> okay. In my effort to feel like a well-rounded parent which I don't always achieve at but I (laughs) I try really hard is to give yeah to give my daughter many different experiences even if she's not interested in art or or whatever so going to the exhibits that are happening you know or or going to the museum to see that thing and there was one on recently um by Chiharu Shiota it's called The Soul Trembles and she's this amazing artist that is originally from Japan but but um, is in Berlin, and she makes all of these sculptures to do with yarn. This has been the fabric that she's decided, and a lot of them are to do uh, with red yarn or very intense black yarn, and it will look kind of like a spider web per se, like you might walk into a room and it's it's, it's kind of completely covered. And a lot of the themes that she's working with are actually kind of dark, you know, mortality or rebirth or loss of life or or um, kind of questioning um, lineage in your existence, moving from place to place, so being displaced or moving to another country and never feeling like you fit in there but then not fitting in back home. I remember seeing this exhibition, it was maybe only like three weeks ago, and it was really, really powerful um, the way that, she made me think about myself as an individual in relation to sort of, you know, social fabrics or um, culture or immigration per se. So it was a really, really thoughtful exhibition. And it's really interesting going to these things with my daughter um, because sometimes you just get really literal questions like, oh, what is that? I don't understand that. And then you also have these conversations on the way home that are like way bigger then <laughs> you know what a nine-year-old can stomach about mortality or facing your own mortality and it being very matter of fact and sometimes that's really um really really refreshing as well so that that was one of the exhibitions I've seen recently that was really inspiring but I don't really get out much Pete you know like I'm just practicing all the time right. I don't I don't do anything exciting <laughs> Actually, the other thing I'm doing right now is I have a concert on Wednesday night in this coming week and I'm playing a solo by Sarah Henney's mm. Thought Sectors um, and it goes for like one hour and it's been such an intense experience preparing this piece because I might just do one thing really simply for like three minutes because the piece goes for, for so long or I might just do this one thing on the vibraphone over and over and then slowly it changes to the next thing and the experience that you have as a listener of playing is so wild. It, your perception of your, the space in front of you and the instrument changes so much. So that's been really, really wild for me as well, <laughs> preparing this in my office. <laughs> yeah. 
What a delight getting to talk to Rebecca Lloyd-Jones for this interview. I hope our paths cross soon enough, and hopefully, when they do, she'll be Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Best wishes to her in the future. This week's rave is a thank you to all of those involved in the aforementioned Macy's Parade trip. The primary thanks goes to the director of athletic bands at Mizzou, Dr. Amy Knops. This was her dream to have the band perform here, and she put together and prepared this trip over the course of many years. This included making connections through alumni, the administration, all of the departments that our Marching Mizzou members are majoring in, community interactions, all of it. It was an impressive amount of work to make this happen, and she did it. Major thanks to Dr. Christian Noon, our assistant director of bands, along with all of our graduate teaching assistants, Allison Davis, Amanda Greenbacker-Mitchell, Faith Hall, Jeremiah Ingram, Zach Neenaber, and Noah Wright, who all did incredible work keeping up with our students throughout the week and during the parade. Those GTA positions in particular include a lot of work behind the scenes the students don't see. It's a massive undertaking, and they all excelled. Huge thanks to all of our staff, including Sherry Wendling, our twirlers coach, Kayla Timberlake and Allie Hickey, our Golden Girls coaches, Christina Thalhuber, our Director of Guards, previous podcast guest Cliff Walker, our Director of Drumline, Nate Brown, who does a lot of our photos and video, and Greg Crocker, the voice of Marching Mizzou, who pulled major double duty by driving the truck with all the equipment with his son to and from New York City and Columbia, Missouri to get back to the game Friday and also all of the School of Music staff who helped make this possible. But finally, the biggest kudos for this trip go to those who most deserve it, our heroes, the students in Marching Mizzou. They were put through the ringer for the entirety of the semester. And while the trip included a lot of great moments and times for all of them, it was super, super exhausting. I know I was young once, but I don't think I've ever had a marching schedule that punishing in my own life, which included that much travel and that many football games. And I should mention that those students who were involved in mini Mizzou, our pep band had to play men's and women's basketball games and women's volleyball games all during this same time. And there was a week and a half or so where there were games and matches every night. So these students are our heroes and they deserve all the accolades they receive now and in the coming weeks months, and years. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.